gonna get it wrong. Oh, it's all right. No, right. Come. <laughs> okay. Right. Oh. Welcome to Contingency FM. Nailed it. Right. Class. <laughs> um, I'm your host today, and today we have joining us Abby, just come for the bands, Sharma, Jossie, Sips Tea in the Corner, Amy, and me, your host, Phil, Bert from Mary Poppins White. <laughs> now in stereo. Oh, lovely. Uh, so, this episode, we're going to be talking through the tasks that you've made done in the prioritization exercise. Uh, but for our warm up before we get started, uh, we're going to talk through some of our favourite books. So, we'll start with you, Abby. What? See, that's the only reason I came, really. So I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm leaving after we've done the glockenspiel and the books, so that's it. But yeah. Don't complain that we're not providing a quality educational experience <laughs> right here. <laughs> um, I really like Any Human Heart. I don't know if anyone's read that. By William Boyd. No, not even heard of it. It's class. Is it an anatomy book? No. <laughs> you nerd. No, it's <laughs> I think, I think I used it in first year initially. That sounds familiar. Yeah. No, it's a um, it's a really good book, and it's um, it's like about a man's entire life. It's very interesting. It's like a diary. Mm. And then they did a TV program. All right. With a few people in it, can't remember who. No, I, some <laughs> there was details. <laughs> there were some some uh, very famous actors in it. <laughs> yeah, I think you, you can. You, Not you're using to spoil sort of it for you, but a lot, a lot, you're giving us information which is really narrowing it down. <laughs> now, were they male or female actors? Or, or male? Both, or oh no, male. there were some female ones there. <laughs> <laughs> no, the male. The, it's about a man. So, oh, I'm gonna have to double. Well, shall, we, right? shall I play the Glockenspiel for a bit while <laughs> I Google who Jossie, was in? Uh, what is your uh, favourite book? Um, so I'm going to do my favourite book from when I was little, which was the, um, I don't actually know exactly what they're called, but all the Faraway Tree ones, I think there's three of them. I think there's loads actually, because oh, I, wow. I really liked that book also when I was, mine was an adult, that sounds weird if I say it was an adult book, it's a book for grown-ups, grown-ups yeah, <laughs> <So> <laughs> it makes it sound a bit more, but that was, the, yeah, I think there were a lot of like, was it Magic Faraway Tree or was it just the Faraway Tree? I think it was the Magic Faraway Tree and then there was one that was like the folk of the Faraway Tree. Yeah, they were class, whatever they were. there was another one, but they're incredible and if you've never read them, you should totally read them. Yeah, no, I agree. And Enid Blyton was... So there was a Magic Tree in the forest and there were three little kids who discovered it and all sorts of different people lived in the tree and if you got to the top of the tree there was a ladder and the ladder took you up through into a magical world but the magical worlds rotated so it was a different magical kind of world yeah. every week I think and sometimes yeah. they got stuck in the magical world which they didn't get down to the top whole of the tree in time. problems didn't it yeah so then they had to go and try and find the way back to the moon top of the tree got really stressed that was one of the moon characters yeah. taking I knew you were going to say that <laughs> I knew you were going to say that no <laughs> it was just a giant moon um, with a body. With yeah, who had possibly <laughs> taken Bredner's loan? Yeah, um, <laughs> just ruined that child's story. Was... For me. <laughs> the steroid-induced should... psychosis. Yeah. yeah, yeah, maybe that's what that whole book was actually a metaphor for. There we go. There we go. Well, uh, <laughs> my uh, my favourite book is uh, one called "The Name of the Wind" by Patrick Rothfuss. 
uh, highly oh, recommend in your uh, your time off. It's a, a phenomenal piece of art. It take, takes me through all the fields. Wow, what a what a way to describe a book. Yeah. A phenomenal. I was just going to say, you know what else is a phenomenal piece of art? RuPaul's Drag Race. Oh, no, okay, but wait, 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 stop it. <laughs> yeah, not naming all 50 on this episode, or any other episode. Before I go, though, I've just Googled who's in any human heart. Okay, cool. And it's Jim Broadbent. He's famous, oh. isn't he? Matthew McFadden. Jim Broadbent also played a significant role in my favourite film, Hot Fuzz. Uh, yeah, nice. I uh, would watch that anytime. And that's everyone famous in it, there we go. Um, but yeah. So... Uh, on to the topic of this podcast. <laughs> actually, uh, I'll uh, leave and let you guys oh, right. actually do some teaching. Excellent, excellent. Well, it's been lovely to have you here, Abby. And uh, do you want to just uh, do us a quick outro for yourself? Okay. Uh, you feel free to mess, mix it up a bit, you know. Well, <laughs> you, I th- you accused me of when being you said aggressive. Mix up, and I was really meant mess it up. <laughs> <laughs> oh! I'll have the stick. We were just going to have a chat through the tasks that you may have done um, that we sent through on Friday afternoon. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, as with the previous podcast, which we went through a a slideshow, uh, we'll have a tone when we uh, go forwards a slide. Um, So... uh, you should, if you have up in front of you the pod, uh, the podcast, <laughs> the PowerPoint that we've sent through, tasks, answers. Uh, so we'll start off on slide two. Super deep describing. Oh, we haven't got these in the same order that they are in the workbook. No, so apologies, you'll have to bounce around a bit. So this is the COPD patient Agnes Green. So it's task, task 11. Task 11. So we're now on to slide four. Uh, so, um, with this one, uh, you should be prescribed, this is a, this is a COPD bundle, so uh, we've got carmoxiclav, 1.2 grams IV, prednisolone, oral salbutamol, 2.5 milligrams nebulized, and ipratropium bromide, 500 micrograms nebulized. Uh, so, antibiotics, what's your take on antibiotics in COPD patients, Jossie? Um, well... Everything that's going on in the world makes it slightly different at the moment. Yeah. But if we ignore all of that, then we give antibiotics if we are suspecting uh, infective exacerbation of COPD. And what would make we? And not if we don't. Yeah. What would make you think IV versus oral? For antibiotics, mm. so some trusts will use the decaf um, scoring system. So that's similar to our curb 65, but it's for COPD exacerbations. Mm. And if you are somewhere that uses that, then it will be in the microbiology guidelines and it will give you what the scoring system is. And then based on that score, it will tell you what antibiotics to give and whether to give them oral or IV. Um, But in general, things that push you towards IV rather than oral are obviously if someone can't manage oral then you're going to give them IVs or if someone is um, septic with an infection if it's affecting yeah. them systemically then you're more likely to give them IVs and orals yeah uh, prednisolone uh, we tend to give again that sort of oral but uh, we may give an initial first dose as hydrocortisone uh, IV uh, if 
uh, we want to get that in quickly. Prednisolone takes around about eight hours to kick in, uh, whereas hydrocortisone is, is much quicker than that. Uh, however, once they're on regular, uh, then uh, it's got a fairly long half-life, so um, staying with the prednisolone oral is absolutely fine. Uh, with the nebulizers, um, salbutamol um, has a good effect at a similar effect at 2.5 milligrams as it does at 5 milligrams for the lungs. Uh, in the edit, I thought I'd just fact check this for you. It is indeed true. Uh, Nair uh, 2005 in uh, chest found that there was no difference in uh, recovery of PEFR or length of hospital stay in patients who received 2.5 or 5 milligrams, but importantly, there's no difference in side effects uh, either. Uh, so we'll move on. Um, so I'll move on again. You can see here we've, we've got the uh, regular meds prescribed. Um, on our example here, we've also prescribed Priodel, which is lithium carb uh, carbonate, and Quetiaprine, uh, which is Circoil uh, XR. Um, or Circoil XR. Um, so the main thing with that is just, I think, as an example of different ways that you can prescribe uh, drugs with brand names. Um, essentially, as long as you put the brand name and the drug name in, that's the main take-home point with brand names. So it doesn't. there's multiple ways you could prescribe it, but um, the most important thing is getting both names in. And actually, the more information you have on the Cardex, the more useful that is. Mm -hmm for the pharmacist and for when you come to do the discharge script. Absolutely. Um, so here you'll note that I've crossed off the teotropium. Uh, that's because teotropium is a long-acting form of ipratropium and uh, should not be prescribed as long as we've got the patient on ipratropium nebs as they're doing the same thing. And then we've got duress, which we continue as a preventer inhaler. So we're on to our pelvic x-ray interpretation. Which is task 12 on your workbook. Um, so for this one, it's relatively, hopefully a relatively simple x-ray. Hopefully we'll able to spot that there's a uh, fracture in the left uh, femur in the, in the intracapsular fracture. Um, something worth noting on this one is it's Whenever you're looking at a uh, hip x-ray, um, look always at the pelvic bowl um, and you're looking for, remember that, that the pelvis is a bit like a polo mint, so if it's cracked on one side then uh, it'll crack on the other um, unless the pubic ramer has displaced. Um, and so always double check the outline of the pelvis. On this one it's, it's fine. but. Uh, um, any other comments to make on this one, Jessie? Um, no, so you're checking the, the kind of outline of the pelvis and then also remembering, your, as you said, your pubic rimae bones as well. So checking your, your circles in the pelvis, the big one and your two little ones. Mm. Cool. And that's uh, a bit more information on there on the slide. And here we have a list of different types of fractures uh, that you might come across. Um, obviously the main 
distinguishing feature is the intraarticular or intracapsular versus extracapsular um, because of the change on management that holds. And we have the different garden stages of fractures. Um, in general, stage one and two are more stable and can be treated with internal fixation. So that's uh, because they don't end up with, uh, they're, they're lower risk of having a devascularization of the head, uh, whereas stage three and four are unstable and need um, hemi or total arteroplasty. I think with um, hip fractures, um, the important thing to remember is that they operate on almost all of them. So never assume that someone is too unwell or too frail mm. or has too short a prognosis um, to have an operation on a broken hip because they do it from a pain management point mm. of view rather yeah. sometimes rather than from a mobility point of view. That's a really good point, Josie. So now we're into a chest X-ray interpretation. Uh, so what you should see on the chest X-ray, which 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 is um, this is your task one on your book work. Yeah. Book. Uh, so for the chest X-ray, um, it's important that and well, this is the same advice we give for the ECG and for the chest X-ray is that uh, even if you don't report it with sort of going through step by step every single detail on the x-ray or on the ECG uh, it is really important that you, that you go through those steps in your mind first so even if you're just reporting normal sinus rhythm or uh, chest x-ray clear uh, do have that structure so for chest x-rays that's um, do you want to just run through that structure Jossie? Um, so you need to check the quality of your film first to make sure that it's kind of adequate for you to make any conclusions on um, and then people have different ways of doing it. Um, I tend to kind of try to do ABC, so A for airway, so check my trachea, um, B for lungs, so looking at the lung fields, C for circulation, so looking at my heart, D for diaphragms, and E is, as it often is, everything else. Mm. Having Remembering to have a look at the bones yep. in the shoulders and the ribs, um, and any of the abdomen that is on the film as well. Great. Um, so this one shows a right mid-zone pneumonia. Um, and as you can see, our plan there is to, to treat the sepsis 6. Um, so our next one is bloods uh, for admission following a fall. So this is task two. Um, so uh, we've got here the top of the sheet uh, for your blood request. Um, it, this is it is important to make sure you get all the different parts of this correct. Um, often most systems now are electronic, um, but the reason why we get you to practice this is because occasionally hospital systems do go down. Uh, I don't know if anyone remembers. We had a, a great virus two years ago, I think it was now, but about this time two years ago, uh, yeah. and it held everything hostage. Um, so we were all doing paper forms then. Uh, so we'll move on to the next slide. Uh, so we've got a list of different blood requests here. Um, initially, we thought about 
saying that uh, you had eight uh, blood tests to oh one cry that was it yeah um, so we had a uh, eight eight blood tests to request um, we'll just chat through each of those and I'd be interested to get your your opinion Josie on on what you think would be sensible to request so um, if we started off with full blood count. Um, yeah, so you do your full blood count because you would be kind of looking for anemia um, mainly, but I suppose also your haematological malignancy can mm -hmm. cause you to feel tired all the time, so you'd be interested in white cells yeah. as well. Um, we've requested ESR. Um, so ESR is... Why, yeah, why is ESR better than CRP? Um, so it's more specific for your rheumatological conditions mm. and your vasculitis. Yeah. Um, it, um, and we've requested use knees, um, and that's probably more because uh, use knees are fairly. Uh, I mean, they're just as a standard blood test, they, they give us a lot of information. Uh, I suppose uh, if, if your sodium is high or low, that could result in in uh, tiredness, um, and if that progresses um, to uh, seizures or, or coma. Yeah, and. Um Renal failure. Renal failure, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Or make you feel Tired. very lethargic. Yeah. And then we've got the bone profile ticked. What on the bone profile can make you? So that gives us another, well, it gives us calcium, doesn't it? So yeah. it gives us another electrolyte and calcium neophosphate. Mm. Um, we've looked at liver profile uh, as a broad screen for sort of autoimmune liver diseases. Uh, any kind of chronic liver disease, again, can result in you feeling very tired. Um, and then we ticked HbA1c. So why is HbA1c a better measure or diagnosti diagnosis for diabetes than glucose or fasting glucose? Uh, so it gives you a more long-term view of what's going on. Yeah. Because um, it's three months, isn't it? Because it's the life of the red blood cells. Yeah, yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it, it tells you what the sugars have been doing over the last three yeah. months. And the other good thing about it, or the advantage it has, is that fasting glucose is a, a right pain for patients and... Uh, and doctors to try and uh, get sorted. So there's a practical element there as well. It might, I don't know if it's worth just saying that a bone profile isn't a thing that will exist everywhere. Yeah. Um, so so what's, what's included in a bone profile? Well, I, I still get confused because then we ne I never heard of it at uni and then there were, when I did foundation, there was yeah, a bone profile wasn't, wasn't an option. Number, I know. Um, so it's calcium and phosphate. It yeah. must give us a, our alkphos as well. Mm, and magnesium. And magnesium. Yeah. Um, but everywhere else I've ever worked has just had those as separate tests to request. Yeah. Um, so if you're starting F1 somewhere else and you can't find it, then that will be why. Yeah. Uh, the other thing we've ticked there is thyroid profile, um, for hopefully obvious reasons. Um, there's a bit of a debate when we're looking at this about whether you would request B12, folate, and ferritin. Um, now, from a sort of rationalisation point of view, it might be better to uh, wait to see what the HB and MCV shows before we would consider requesting those, just because otherwise uh, we might be requesting tests unnecessarily. Would you agree with that? Yeah, and there is also something about, you know, not looking for things you don't necessarily want to find, keeping things as simple as you can. Yeah. Um, and if you wouldn't treat an abnormality and they're good looking for it. Yeah. 
It's a great point. So we'll move on. So fall and hip pain. Uh, so here you can see the uh, guidelines for um, uh, for requesting a, a CT head. I think these guidelines for what what situation you would request a CT head are really important to look at uh, and to try and commit to memory if you can to get really really familiar with as you will use this all the time. So this is task three. Task three. Um, so here as a sort of based on the, the fall that um, it, we've suggested that you request both the CT head urgent and also a hip x-ray um, for query knock. Um, it might be worth saying at this point as well um, to have a look at the guidelines when you are starting work because some places take prophylactic low molecular weight heparin as an anticoagulant. Mm. So almost every patient who falls in hospital mm. therefore requires a CT head according to the guidelines. Yeah. Some trusts, yeah. I don't think, see prophylactic low molecular weight heparin as an anticoagulant. So mm. it just depends on your local guidelines. Yeah. So we're into agitated patient, which task is this? This is task four. Um, so essentially the, uh, the point of this uh, scenario is to try and get you to think about uh, sort of situations where you might be asked to prescribe uh, sedation uh, for someone and think about why we might not do that as a first line option. Um, so what what's better, so what, what if, if we've been asked to come and see someone who's agitated, what kind of things you would you be thinking about, Chelsea? Well I think you first have to think about why they're agitated. Mm. Um, and is this a acute medical problem presenting mm. as agitation? So is there anything that we can reverse? Yeah. Is there anything? Do I need to do any investigations? Mm. Do I need to do any give any treatment? Um, mm. Sometimes agitation can be terminal agitation. So mm. does this represent a uh, deterioration that I am unable to treat, mm. and therefore might prompt me to have kind of discussions? with the patient or with, with relatives um, and perhaps prompt kind of change in direction of treatment. Um, for this patient, when we look at the notes, it sounds very much um, like that his agitation actually uses just his or her normal self. Mm. Um, yeah, absolutely. Agreed. And so I think conservative measures for this patient would be very sensible. Another thing worth mentioning about this is that, is that this is probably a good example of a daily review. Uh, so um, you can see there's a lot of information there. You've got the background, social history, past medical history, uh, what they're admitted with, their problem list. Um, and so I think just to point out that this is why it can be so helpful. So when you're coming on call, you can, you've got all the information in front of you. You don't have to sort of uh, scrabble around trying to work out what's going on. Um, and the absolute key here is our collateral. So mm. you, we've got that um, the care home is saying he's usually more aggressive at night and mm. that this is best managed with routines and observation. Yeah. And so that gives you your answer for how you should manage this in hospital. Mm. So we're going to take a quick break and uh, play our happy tune of the day. Uh, this is On My Way by The Proclaimers, uh, featured in the hit film Shrek. Uh, which, when I was researching uh, 
the film. I don't know why I was researching the film, but uh, yeah, it found out that it's in. It was released in two thousand one, which is a bit devastating because it means that people who were born when that came out are already in first year of medicine. <sighs> Farewell, lost youth. Farewell. So the next one is insulin prescribing, which is task seven. Task seven. Task seven, good. So uh, on the first page, uh, you don't have to touch the first page at all. Don't have to prescribe. Everything in there is already as it should be prescribed. Um, it's worth mentioning as well uh, that a uh, pen is a device, and that most insulin, uh, well, most most ways of giving insulin tend to be devices. Uh, it's quite unusual that I've seen people use vials. Um, no way. I've never come across a insulin vial. What's the other one? A cartridge. cartridge. Yeah. Um, uh, sorry to any endocrine consultants in the making out there who might disagree with me. Um, so uh, the other thing is that insulin um, patients who self-administer insulin tend to be very well informed and uh, sort of uh, have a lot of knowledge about their condition. So uh, do double check with them before you give anything. Absolutely, and you would never be wrong to check with a patient mm -hmm. um, what dose of insulin they feel like they should be having. Yeah. If you're changing it, then just, yeah. you know, let's yeah. say that you've noticed, for example, their BM was low or high and you think maybe it needs changing and what would they do at home mm. and they might be very used to adjusting their insulin mm. dose already and they might just tell you what they would like. Yeah. It's also worth saying it's very unusual for a patient to be having insulin levels given over 60 uh, or 70 around about there so particularly if you've got someone been given sort of three figures then you need to be really thinking about uh, uh, whether this is the correct dose or whether someone's made a mistake uh, so on this next page you see sort of what we're trying to get up this is a bit of a mini insulin teach uh, so a few a few ground rules the first one is that insulin is given uh, well also bi-daily insulin is given at, uh, before breakfast and before uh, dinner uh, that is uh, the southern dinner rather than northern dinner uh, referring to the evening meal rather than lunchtime um, uh, to cover the spike in glucose over that time uh, not given pre-bedtime um, and the second thing is uh, that the glucose uh, level uh, corresponds to the previous insulin given so this uh, score of 3.5 refers to the insulin dose in the morning therefore we would leave the evening dose as it is but move the morning dose down and there's a helpful rule of thumb isn't there when, when titrating insulin up or down what's that it's like I'm being quizzed I know, um, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just trying to make it more interactive for no. listeners. Um, so you do it by 10%. 10%, absolutely, yeah. Um, but obviously, do not prescribe decimal points of insulin because the nurses will come find you and tell you that that's impossible to do. Beat you with a slipper. Yeah, so for 34, then you could reduce it by 3. Yeah. Um, lovely. Um, and if you ever have to give acute doses of uh, Actor rapid and over rapid for someone with non DKA slash HHS hyperglycemia, 
um, then uh, giving four units of either of those two and then rechecking in about an hour would be a perfectly reasonable action to do. I think insulin is something that people feel very stressed and out of their comfort zone with. Mm. Um, it's really not as complex, is it? No, but I think people. I think it's a worrying thing because yeah. there is the risk of doing harm there. And yeah. the way I dealt with that was just by checking with the patient because mm. the patient has had most patients have often had diabetes for a long time and very yeah. used to managing that. Um, mm. So I used to just you know say are you all right with this many units yeah. this morning. Yeah, I remember being terrified of uh, giving insulin in F1 particularly, um, but I think over time it's, it's helpful to, if you're, if you're unsure about this, make sure you ask for help, even that's just the SHO on call, they should be able to advise yeah. these things over the phone. Yeah. So IVT's the next one, so this, so is, this ta is task eight. Excellent. Uh, so we've got uh, so basically when approaching IVT, I think there's two core questions to ask. It's not sort of like a, as much of a, of a formula of what to do as there is necessarily in paediatrics, um, but it's to ask how much fluid do they need and how fast do they need it? And so you're never treating, and this is a rule for all of medicine, you, you, you don't treat a number, you treat a whole patient. Um, so in this, there's lots and lots and lots of cl uh, clues in this scenario uh, as to uh, why this person might be fluid deficient. Um, I'm gonna put you on the spot so again. So should we go through yeah. them? Um, so I think that this patient needs fluid because his urine, f his um, renal function is going off. So his urea has gone up and his creatinine has gone up and those are quite significant jumps mm -hmm. up as well. Um, he's had a reduced urine output overnight um, and it looks sounds like it's concentrated it's dark urine and we can see that on the fluid chart overleaf as well um, yeah so he's not passed very much um 750 mils in and what class and that's wants. over the last yeah so it's 750 mils in the last day that he's taken in because that's our input and then it just he's passed urine yeah once um so we do want to give him some fluid because yeah, he's also got cap refill of three so he's dehydrated yeah you might also look for the mucous membranes that's yeah. a good good measure of dehydration and um, what makes you think about how fast this patient should get it so perhaps i would say first that i would be a little bit worried about giving fluids to this patient right not that he wouldn't need them because we've just said he does but i have noticed that he's got um heart failure in his past medical history um with a reduced um, ejection fraction mm -hmm. um, and he's also got mild pitting to his knees mm -hmm. um, so I want to give him fluid um, but I don't want to put kind of give him pulmonary edema and make mm -hmm. him unwell so I'd want to give him fluid slowly mm -hmm. um, how much fluid does this person need do you think overall how much how many how far do you think they're deficient they're sort of, sort of 200 mils 500 mils litre more well so 250 mils is not going to do anything for yeah. his dehydration or his kidneys. Mm -hmm. If you think about how much kind of 250 mils is, it's just like a can of Coke. Mm. So it's, some, it's good if someone is hypotensive and you want to see if a bit of fluid is going to increase the blood pressure. But when someone is um, got an AKI, then that's going to do very, very little. Mm. Um, so I'd want to be giving this patient at least a litre. 
um, and because of his heart failure and because he's got kind of pitting to his knees and I'd want to give him at over 12 hours I think mm. um, it's really useful here that we've got uh, respir- uh, that they've listened to his chest um, but before I before the fluid started I would have another listen to his yeah, chest so chest, that yeah. I can go back and then if he does start having kind of bilateral crackles and I'm thinking perhaps he's got some fluid on his lungs because I'm yeah, giving so him fluid, before or after I can chest. compare. Yeah. yeah. If I forget to do that, then I'll go and listen to his chest and I'll have no idea if that's new or not. Mm. So look at the painkiller next. So this is task... So this is... No, that's our transcribing of that, so. Here, it's, oh no, am I, it is task five. Task five. So um, uh, I've attached here, just as a reminder, the um, WHO pain and ladder guidance. Um, so something I think worth saying is that from the nature of the pain described in the history, uh, ibuprofen would probably be the best to address this. However, this sort of station... Um, it's a bit of a, a mini teacher really about ibuprofen. So there's a few reasons why we would be very hesitant to give ibuprofen in this patient um, looking at their medication. So first of all, it's suggested that they probably have asthma given that they're inhalers. Uh, so we would want to uh, avoid that um, because uh, ibuprofen will uh, reverse uh, the beneficial effects of those inhalers. And also you might want to flag to the day team that they're on bisoprolol with asthma as well which uh, will also do the same thing. Um, second of all, that on prednisolone and prednisolone and... And Ramipril, so an ACE inhibitor. Yeah, so prednisolone and, and uh, ibuprofen uh, will both uh, damage the stomach lining and uh, ibuprofen or NSAIDs and Ramipril uh, increases your chance of getting an AKI. So, what would you choose instead and why? Um, so... Sometimes choosing painkillers can be a really difficult concept because there's all sorts of reasons mm. that they're all contraindicated. Um, so she's had as much paracetamol um, as she is allowed in the last 24 hours, so that's mm. not an option. That would have been my first go-to. Ibuprofen would have been my next go-to, but we've already discussed why we won't want to do that. Um, so I would then think about giving her a weak opiate like codeine. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, in their BNF... Uh, it marks codeine down as a uh, re- recommended dose 30 to 60 milligrams but I think it's been wor- it's worth mentioning that you can give 15 milligrams of codeine and often we do especially in elderly people uh, and that reduces the side effect profile codeine's very good at making old people delirious yeah um, so you want to use a, the smallest yeah. dose that you possibly can it's worth commenting that paracetamol and codeine also have a multiplication effect on each other so they work better uh, together than either than do separately and you might also want to consider writing up a prn laxatives if mm. you're prescribing opiates yeah so this is our transcription case so this S- is your task number nine yeah so based on this or the, on the on the cardex what underlying conditions are there so um Given the antibiotics, we can infer that they've probably got some kind of infection, probably chest or urine. 
Um, they've got lands up results. They might have gourd or something related. Um, they've got a number of medications which might be treating heart failure or um, hypertension or both, um, especially given the furosemide. Um, and they've also got very high dose morphine, and that's been prescribed halfway through their admission. So. For someone to get a high dose morphine uh, prescribed halfway through admission, I mean, a high dose morphine is quite unusual to be prescribed, so there's only really two quite common things which that's done in, and that's in cancer or in hip fractures. And so in this case, it's most likely to be uh, a hip fracture given it's been started afresh. Um, however, obviously, we want to see the notes for that because there could be other reasons. Sometimes things like that get missed off. And they should have always been there. Yeah. And then they get added later. So first things first is to recognise some of the interactions. So we've already mentioned ibuprofen with ramipril uh, or, and furosemide. Um, uh, and we'd want to replace that with an alternative painkiller. Uh, but there's also interaction between ramipril and spironolactone here, which is high potassium, and between uh, ramipril spironolactone and furosemide, which might all increase your risk of AKI. Uh, so in this case, if they absolutely need uh, to get, uh, uh, you have diuretics to get fluid off, for example, then you might consider holding the ramipril, maybe stopping, uh, well, yeah, holding the ramipril um, and potentially holding the spironolactone and seeing what their response is on furosemide. And if that's not enough, then restarting the um, lactone with that again. I would, so here we've just given you the cardex, so we're asking you to make a lot of assumptions. Yeah. yeah. In reality, you would never um, change medications like that without looking at the notes because there might be very good reason mm. that they're on these All odd these combinations. Things, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, it might, if you're not sure overnight, um, and even if you think there's a good reason for something, you can always uh, put a box around it and say to review the next morning and they should, the day team should review it. Uh, with antibiotics we want to switch to PI antibiotics and we also want to hold the PPI for seven days uh, switching for ranitidine uh, because of the increased risk of C. diff. Um, with the painkillers uh, we're going to make the paracetamol regular, uh, we're going to rationalise the opiates. We've had a bit of a discussion post-edit uh, just to clarify a couple of points on this one so I think it's fair just to uh, interrupt here. Um, so when increasing morphine, you take all of the morphine that they've had in the last 24 hours, so that's the regular and the PRN, add it together and then make that dose, the regular morphine, uh, up to uh, no more than uh, 1.5 times what they're already receiving regularly, uh, which is uh, an increase of 50%, and that would be the maximum. So for example, uh, if you had... Uh, uh, 10 milligrams um, BD of regular morphine uh, and they had an additional 10 milligrams of or um, PRN morphine over the last uh, 24 hours then you would add that all together that's 30 milligrams and then uh, increase that uh, so they're getting 15 milligrams BD morphine regularly uh, but if for example they had 20 milligrams PRN uh, you would still only increase it to 15 milligrams BD. 
So a uh, sensible might be to give 7.5 milligrams of... Yeah, absolutely. Uh, more. Yeah, BD. Yeah. Um, and then make sure that your PRN dose is adequate. And to be adequate, your PRN dose has to be a sixth of your total mm. daily dose. So that means that oromorph dose here is actually quite large and unnecessarily large, so we might reduce that to 2.5 milligrams. So, but when the regular morphines are that low... I don't think you reduce the PRNs, you only increase the PRNs when you get oh, to okay. at the point at which you have to increase them. Uh, so last, I think it's the last one, uh, the warfarin. So this is task number 10 in your workbook. So uh, essentially I've copied and summarised the uh, guidance from the BNF on oral anticoagulation. Um, so uh, in this case we look at the iron IR is 5 to 8, they're not bleeding, so we withhold one or two doses and reduce the subsequent maintenance dose. Um, so it's quite unusual that you have to prescribe warfarin now on the wards. It's mostly done by specialist nurses and most patients we transfer to other DOACs. But this patient wouldn't be transferred to a DOAC um, because they've got a metallic heart valve. Yeah. So it's also a reminder not to assume that your target range is 2 to 3. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got a last one here. This is chest pain. So that's the ECG interpretation, which is num task number six task in number your six. workbook. Um, so again, if, uh, what I've been saying to people is, if you spend uh, shorter than a minute looking at an ECG before giving a diagnosis or interpretation, um, then you've not spent long enough. So. Every time you look at an ECG, you need to be looking through uh, uh, from the from the rate rhythm and P waves all the way through to the, the T waves uh, for each lead and uh, looking in detail, otherwise you'll miss something important. Uh, in this case, it is normal sinus rhythm. Um, even if you don't document all that, uh, just to be going through that in your head. Uh, so we might think about a workup for a PE or infection uh, in this case as part of our plan. Yeah, and of course a normal um, ECG or ECG kind of in sinus rhythm with no ischemic changes doesn't rule out uh, yeah. MI or yeah. um, a cardiac cause of chest pain. But the history here does point us away from that, you know, towards other causes. Yeah. So, um, to finish, we're gonna close with a joke. Uh, Yay! Have you got, have you got a joke? I had a joke. It seems to have disappeared. Well, while you're finding it again, I'll share mine. Uh, so, uh, a teacher asked a student, uh, Now, Sam, uh, tell me frankly, do you say prayers before eating? And uh, Sam replied, No, sir, I don't have to. My mum is a good cook. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. <laughs> Wonderfully terrible. I'll tell you what I love doing more than anything. What? Trying to pack myself into a small suitcase. Why? I can hardly contain myself. <laughs> how do you how do you respond to that? Oh, I like it. It's better than mine, to be quite fair. A lorry load of tortoises crashed into a train load of terrapins. What, what a turtle disaster! Oh gosh. Uh, this is Contingency FM signing out.